All right. Well, we are in the Minor Prophets. So uh, we're halfway through. Uh, we're in the book of Micah. So, uh, you know, so either go to Matthew and hang a left or, or you know, get to about, about Daniel and hang a right. So we're kind of in that middle. I call it the white pages. You know, a lot of people, like, they get to Minor Prophets, and you're like, oh, what are they talking about? What's going on? Well, Micah is, uh, is going to share with us, I believe, a lot of what's going on in our world today was going on in Micah's time. Now, Micah, it, it, it identifies him as from a little place called Moraseth. Now, Moraseth, if you'll see Jerusalem... And about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem is Moraseth. And Moraseth, so he's in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he's right on the border with the Philistines. You see that, those green marks that say Gath? Those, those, that's Philistine territory. They were enemies. And so he's raised out, he's a country boy. Moraseth is not very big. And, but he not only prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah, he also prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that had broke loose. And, and that's going to be something very significant that he's talking about in his book. Who he's prophesying about and what did they do to bring God's judgment on him, on them. And so he, he comes from that little town of Moraseth, and uh, he is in the period, if you'll see him, he's down there at the bottom. Micah is going to come from the southern kingdom. He's going to prophesy to both kingdoms. His, he is the, uh, he prophesies around 750 to 700 B.C., and he's, uh, his uh, companions are Isaiah and Hosea. Isaiah preached to the southern kingdom, and Hosea preached to the northern kingdom, and Micah preaches to both. As a matter of fact, if you look at the language in Micah and the language in Isaiah, they're very similar. They write in a very similar style. So that's who Micah is going to be preaching to. His, uh, his name is, Who is like Jehovah? And uh, I, think, I like that because it's a question. And when we look at the book of Micah, we're going to see God, through Micah, asking questions of us. Asking questions of the people of Israel. And all through the book, we're going to see questions that he asks of us. The book is, there's three times in this book that you're going to see the word here. And that's kind of the three parts that, he, that we're going to look at. He starts in chapter one with the word here. Now, what does that mean? It means pay attention. Listen up. Did your teacher ever do that to you in class? I had a teacher that uh, he, he hated to grade papers. 
he taught a, a, one of the big survey classes. And he said, at the beginning, he said, now, I, I, I want you all to do good. And I know that we're going to go through a lot of material. So when you hear me go, it's going to be on the test. <laughs> so did we, did we pay attention when we heard, you bet. Well, that's what Mike is doing. He's saying, pay attention here. So let's start with Micah 1, 1 through 7. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moriseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. Let the Lord God be witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, for behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. And he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split like wax before the fire, like water poured out from a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down on the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be smashed. All her earnings will be burned with fire. All her images I will make desolate. And she, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of the harlot will they return. So we see that he mentions, he gives us his timeline, right? He mentions the three kings that he, he prophesies under, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He's going to prophesy until the northern kingdom gets taken away by the Assyrians. And he says very specifically, I'm, I'm talking both to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the north, the ten tribes of the north, and Jerusalem, the two tribes of the south, Judah. And he says... All of this is for the rebellion of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. Now, what was that? In 931 B.C., Solomon died. And his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, got in a big fight. And Rehoboam took ten tribes and he went to the north. And he made Samaria his capital of the north. And Jeroboam remained in the south. And Rehoboam wreaked havoc on the northern kingdom. He said, we're not going to come to Jerusalem to worship. They actually made their own temple in Samaria. But they also brought in all of the different gods that came from all of the people around them. And they were, they're, they're, Religion was so polluted with all the idols 
and all the false religion, that God says, what are you doing? He says, for your rebellion, I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge you first, and eventually I'm going to judge the the southern kingdom. Now, why would God do that? Because God called all 12 tribes. They were 12 brothers, right? The patriarchs. They were all sons of Jacob. They were called under Abraham's covenant. They were called to be together. God calls us to unity. He called them to unity and he held them to task. Because what happens when you have a disagreement and you can't fix it? Oh, all kinds of things come up. We get bitterness. The north and the south hated each other. Matter of fact, even in Jesus' day, you'll remember him telling several stories about Samaria. There was one about the the Samaritan woman, right, who came to the well. And she looked at Jesus and said, Who are you to ask me for water? I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. It lasted even that long. God calls us to unity. And you say, well, what does it have to do with us? Have you looked at the church today? I'm talking the big C. I'm not talking about east side. Yes, are we part of the church? But I want you to look at the church today. How divided are we? Oh, well, I can't, I can't get along with you because you worship different than I do. You know, you guys are over here and you raise your hands. You have, you have a, a different thought on the gifts. Well, well, folks, I got news for you. When we get to heaven, there isn't going to be signs. Non-denominational this way. You know? O- over here is the, the Pentecostals and over in this corner. Or, you know, it's not going to be like that. When we get to heaven, God's going to say, oh, hey, it's the bride of Christ. Welcome to the table. But we we can get so caught up in our own stuff that we're like, well, wait a second. But what does God call us to do? What did he call us to do when he left? He he said, "Go, go make disciples. He didn't say, go increase church membership. That isn't what God called us to do. And and we all have a place that God has called us. He called us to unity. Matter of fact, David had a good way of saying it. Behold, how good and pleasant is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I I miss the days when we used to, uh, I grew up, everybody was brother, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. I still have a good friend of mine back east. He's, he's, he works in Lynchburg where I went to school. And every once in a while he'd call me up and say, Brother Ben, how you doing? And I like that. You'll notice we say brothers and sisters round here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all share each tear. And we rejoice in each victory. 
in this family around here. Well, you know what? That family's pretty big, and it's not just right here at Eastside. I love Eastside. I love you guys. But we're bigger than that. And God calls us to unity. In Ephesians, it says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He calls us together as a body. And that's the way we need to, we need to reach the world. I mean, I loved going out to the convoy, the, the Day of Hope out at the fairgrounds, and watching all these different churches come together to do one thing. Share Jesus Christ with people. Share the love of God. We didn't ask, oh, where are you coming from? We didn't ask where you're going to. We said, you're here, let us love on you. And we did. Well, Micah goes on and and in the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2, he he talks to them about, about what God, how God is going to Um, judge them. But at the end of chapter 2, after all of these things that he says, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you because of your rebellion, because of all of these things you've done. At the end of chapter 2, in verses 12 and 13, he says this, I will surely assemble all of you. Oh, all of you, Jacob, and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, and I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up from them, and they break out and pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. I want you to get the picture here. Notice he said, all of Jacob, not the ten tribes of the north or the two tribes of the south. All of Jacob is going to be called together. The remnant is going to be called together. He says, I'm bringing you to the sheepfold. Now, if you'll remember, we've talked about this before. The sheepfold... Jesus calls himself in John, what? I am the door to the sheepfold. He also says, I am the chief shepherd. And what would happen is all of, the, all of the shepherds that had their own flocks, they would come at the end of the day and they would say, come on, come on sheep. And all the sheep from every shepherd would be ushered in to the sheepfold for the night so that they could all be safe. Now, if you stood there, I don't know how many of you, does anybody ever, anybody ever heard sheep? Right? Oh, you know? Oh, you guys are missing the opportunity of life to, I used to, I, I had that opportunity. They, th- those things go everywhere. And, you know, unlike cows, you know, cows, people brand them. Some people, some sheep nowadays, they have, they have you know, ear tags so you can tell who's whose. 
but you can run all these sheep together in the sheepfold, and I would say, try to pick them out. Pick out which ones are yours. Can you? Oh, no way. Right, Fran? But, but what happens when you call? They come. The shepherd comes to the door and he says, come on, I want my sheep to come out. And here they come. They know the, they know the shepherd's voice. You see, he's going to call, and it says that he will lead them out so their king goes before them and the Lord is at their... He, one day he's going to call us all out. Matter of fact, there's another... In Matthew he talks about the, there, there's some goats in there too and he's going to separate out the goats from sheep. But the sheep hear his voice and they come together and they come out. That's what we, we, we have to be. One day there is going to be a time when we're going to be the family of God. We are going to be the bride of Christ and there will not be any names. There won't be any tags. We will all be together as one. And God will restore Jerusalem, God will destroy, will restore Israel as one. He'll restore all of Israel. Not just the north, not just the south, but he's going to restore all of Israel together. They will once more be in unity. Now Micah chapter 3, he's going to get specific about who he calls out and for what they've done. And I want you to to watch this in Micah chapter 3. It'll be various verses I'm going to go through here. We're going to start out with verse 1 because he says, Here now, what are we supposed to do? Listen up. It's going to be on the test, right? Here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Oh, another question. You who hate good and love evil. And then we go down to verse 4. Then they cried out to the Lord, but he will not hear them. Instead, he will hide his face from them because they have what? They have practiced evil deeds. Now I want you to jump over to verse 9. Now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhorred justice and twisted everything that was straight. Does that sound familiar? What is happening in our world today? He calls them out. He says, hate good and love evil. Have we heard that before? We heard it in Amos, didn't we? In Amos 5, when Amos, who, who as previously he is, he, he prophesied before Micah did, he said this, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord of hosts be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate, perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnants of Joseph. Hate, hate evil, love good. 
But what have we done? We've done exactly the opposite. In the name of equality or equity or whatever you want to call it, we've called evil good and we've hated what is good. And he, God says, no, you've got it backwards. Abhorred, they abhorred just as, but that last phrase, they twist everything that is straight. I have, I, I have watched as we have twisted the truth and we've, we've done it with our children. And we've allowed it to happen. And we got kids that come out and we're teaching them today in kindergarten that they get to choose whatever sexuality they want or whatever gender they want. I got news for you. God created them either male or female. I think last time I looked it up, I was teaching a class on mental health, and there were 65 different gender sexuality choices that you could make. 65. And we expect a five or six year old to make that choice? We have twisted. The truth. The rulers are going to be held accountable for that. Don't let anybody give you the other idea. God says it's not right. He is the standard. He is the way, the truth, and the light. But not only the rulers, but I want you to see the prophets. You see, Micah calls the prophets out in chapter 3. He says this, look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against who, but nothing in their mouth, they declare a holy war. And then down in verse 11, he said, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe and her Priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. He calls the prophets out because they've led people astray. And there will be an answering because you cannot, whatever you want to use to identify somebody as a prophet or a priest, you cannot stand and say you represent God and tell a lie and God not hold you accountable for it. And, the, and we will be held accountable at a higher level than anybody else because we have the truth. And God calls us to preach only the truth. And it says the other part, isn't that interesting? They prophesy for profit. 
that, that little saying up there in verse 5, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. You know what that means? If you feed me, I'll tell you what you want. Right? You know, if you take care of me, whatever you want to hear. And that was a problem that they had with the prophets. Because if you took care of them, oh yeah, everything's going to be good with you. Read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the lone prophet to stand up and say, this is what God says. If you go to Egypt, I'm going to judge you. Don't go to Egypt. Don't turn around and go back. And they said, we don't believe you because all these other prophets are saying, oh, go to Egypt. It'll be safe there as long as you take me with you and take care of me and feed me. And then he says that they prophesy for money. I am so tired of prosperity gospel. You, you, ever, you turn on the TV, you watch the Daystar or, or CBN or whatever, and you watch these preachers get up and say, oh yeah, all you got to do is name it and claim it. I, I don't read that in my Bible. I read that we're to follow God and when you're following God, you're going to be a lot like Jesus. That Jesus was not always a popular guy. I mean, look how he ended up. They crucified him. Because he bucked the system. He was the one who was willing to tell the truth. And he calls us to do the same. He called out the prophets. You know, Paul talks about that in the book of Timothy. Timothy chapter 4, it says this. For the time will come, and I would probably rephrase that. For the time has come, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in according to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and turn aside to myths. That's today, folks. People come up with all kinds of, of ways to say, oh, you know what? Send me your money, and I will do this for you. And God says, no, there is one truth. Well, in Micah chapter 4, uh, if you, I'm not going to talk about it or preach on it this morning. In Michael chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, he's talking about the Millennial reign of Christ. So if you enjoy looking at end days uh, theology, chapters Micah 4, 1 to 8 is a good place to look. He tells you what it's going to be like during that time. And then in 9 through 13 in chapter 4, he, he specifically tells the southern kingdom, you guys are in for it too. You're going to be, you're going to be captured by Babylon and you're going to be carried away. And he makes very specific prophecy to them. But I want to go on to chapter 5, and I'm going to pick one verse out of chapter 5, because this is a verse that we hear every year. And you're like going, what? Micah 5.2. Let me read it to you. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. His goings forth will be from, were from long ago and from the days of eternity. That's, that is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, the Magi have come from the east and they come to, to, to Herod and they say, Herod, we've followed the star all the way from the east and we're told that there's a king that has been born. And Herod's like, I didn't hear that. I've got to take care of this because that's a threat to me. And so he calls all his wise men in and says, what's this about a king being born? And they say, oh, Micah 5, 2. Well, they didn't have the verse, chapters and verses then. But. Then Micah said, and they quote this verse, he's to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod says, oh, hey, he's to be born in Bethlehem. You go find him and then come back and report to me. So off they go to Bethlehem, and guess what they find? The Savior, Jesus, as a little baby. 700 years before, Micah told us his birthplace. 700 years. You think the Old Testament isn't applicable today? He told us where the Christ's child was going to be born 700 years before. And every Christmas, in the Christmas story, we see that prophecy told over and over again. If you didn't believe in Jesus for any other reason, that should be pretty good. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Amen. Well, we're going to we're going to go on because in chapter 6, he's going, he's going to ask us several questions. In Micah chapter 6, he leads out and he, he asks us a number of questions. The first is, in verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. What have I done? How, why, are you, why did you guys quit obeying me? Did I do anything? Isn't that sometimes, you know, you, you hear people, why don't, why don't you want to go to church? Well, because one time God did this to me. Right? Or, or why, is there, why does God allow all of these terrible things to happen in the world? They always point their finger at God when we ought to be pointing our fingers at ourselves. So says, why have you felt, why, why have you wandered away? I got news for you. If you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? It wasn't God. He's the same Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't move. He's right there. He's just, he's just waiting for you to turn and come back. Matter of fact, he's like the, 
prodigal's father, he's waiting on the porch and looking. He's saying, come back. The next question that he asks is in verse 8. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Question mark, right? That's a question. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things. To do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly. Notice that all three of those are actions. We don't say, you know, because you know, I grew up in the 70s, right? Drugs, rock and roll, free love. And God says, no, you, you need to, to do things. You do justice. We can believe in justice. There's a lot of people believe in justice. All you got to do is, is watch for the riots, right? And the signs. Justice for so-and-so. Justice for this. Justice for that. But he says, do justice. Now, what does it mean to do justice? It means treating people fairly. Right? Now that's pretty easy, isn't it? When it's somebody that thinks like you and looks like you and smells like you. But what about doing justice for that person who doesn't? One of the things that, that we, you know, I, I will confess being a cop was really bad for, for looking at things. And, it, and I got a little taste of my own medicine. When I had my elbow surgery, Eileen had to drive. Okay? And we were talking about this. Because as a cop, if I saw a lady driving and a guy in the, other, in the passenger seat, you know what I thought? He's suspended. I mean, I'm telling you. That, that's... You know, or, 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 or a guy driving with his hoodie up. He's got warrants. Right? Maybe his ears were cold. You see, we can, we can come in with our own prejudice. And, and yeah, it's easy to do justice when you look like me and act like me and believe like me. But if you're not like me, that's when justice becomes very, very real in how you treat that person. Jesus said, if you do to the least of these, you've done it unto me. He says, don't, don't look at what they, if they look like you. Justice, to do justice is to do it for somebody that is much, much different than you. And then he says to love kindness. To love it. Now we, you know, the, the world goes through different, you know, we went through the pay it forward, right? We went through the, you know, random acts of kindness thing. But to love kindness, what is it? That means to let it be part of your every action that you do. If you love something, 
It's part of what you, who you are. And then he says, to walk humbly with your God. Now, it's easy to walk humbly, I hope, when you, when you walk through the doors of the church on Sunday. We do a pretty good job of that, right? We put on our humble mask, right? Well, praise God. Hey, thank you for, thank you for working in the, in, the, uh, in the garage sale this last week. Oh, yes, glory to Jesus. Right? Oh, shucks, you know. But what about Monday morning? Walking humbly with your God. Go ahead and pull out in front of me. It's okay. I'll give you that spot. Oh, here, let me open the door for you. Bless you. You see somebody that's, that's distressed walking over and say, hey, I, I notice you're don't look too well today. Can I pray with you? God just told me to, to come. That's walking humbly with your God. With your God. Because when we walk with him, he's going to point out people that need to know that, they, that somebody loves them. That somebody cares. That somebody's willing to take five minutes out of their time, of their day, to say, thank you for helping me. Or, what can I do for you? Walking humbly with our God. That's what he calls us to. Well, in Matthew, or Micah 7, he goes on and he talks about some wonderful things, but I want to bring you to the end of the chapter because we only have so much time. Micah 7, 18, and 19. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the acts of the remnant of his possession? Question mark. Ah, another question. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in unchanging love. For he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The reason that song this morning, the last song we sang, the Father's love impacts me so greatly is because of what he did. You see, he says he casts our sins in the depths of the sea because we sometimes like to hold on to our sins. Oh, you mean I have to give that up for Jesus? I don't want to give that up. And sometimes we hold on to our past and we bring our sin back up to ourselves and we beat ourselves with it, right? I'm such a bad person. This is what I did. How could God love me? I've heard that many, many times. God couldn't love me 
because this is what I did. You know, if you have a, somebody has a problem with it, you take it, you take them to Micah. He casts them into the depths of the sea. When I was when I was studying for this, I said, "What's the deepest place in the sea?" The Marianas Trench, and specifically, Challengers Deep. Challengers Deep is 36,000 feet deep. Okay, 36,000. Now, I want to give you a reference point. Mount Everest, the highest peak in the world, is 29,000 feet. 29,032 to be exact. 29,000. Challengers Deep is so deep, there is no light. If you as a person were to try to dive that deep without any protection, you would be squished because the pressure down that deep is like having 50 Boeing 747s sitting on your chest. Right? That's what Jesus does with your sin. Do you think anybody can find it? You think anything's left? The Jewish people at, at their new year, every year, they go and they take a loaf of bread and they'll go to a running body of water and they'll take their bread and it says they cast their bread upon the water. Why do they do that? Because what happens to bread when it hits the water? It begins to dissolve, right? And, and what doesn't dissolve, the fish eat up and poop out. Is there anything left of their sin? Absolutely not. Our Psalms tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far as our, he has removed our transgressions from us. You ever tried that? I, I had the opportunity one time. We were going to Africa. Normally when we went to Africa, we would leave, we would fly down to L.A. and then we would fly over to Africa. And then when we got back, we'd go over Europe typically, and then we would go into Africa, and when we got done, we would fly back the same way. You go east, you go back to the west. But one year we're over there, and Iceland had the, the, the audacity to have a volcano blow up. And that volcano, all the dust from that volcano came right down over Europe, and nobody was flying over Europe. We were like going, how are we going to get home? They call, Emirates calls us up and says, uh, just be at the airport, we'll pick you up. And we're going east. And we went east. And guess where we ended up? Exactly where we started. We never went west one time. As far as the east from the west, you will never, they will never, ever, ever meet. And God says, that's how far I've removed your sin. Colossians chapter 2, though, I think has the greatest meaning of all. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees that are against us, which was hostile to us, 
and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Wow. Do you understand the significance of what he's saying? The wages of sin is what? Death. We all owe. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. It's written down. And he said he's taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. He paid the price on the cross. And he took that debt we owed and he tore it up and then he burned it. It's ash. Never to be brought up again. He remembers our sin no more. Well, I think that's a good segue to communion. Because Jesus Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he was headed to the cross. When he gave us the Last Supper, when he gave us communion, he said, I want you to understand something. When he took that bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you, he was bruised for what? Our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed Amen. He said, I, I'm going to literally give my body for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood for the forgiveness of sin. Drink all of it. He said, when my blood is shed, I'm paying the price. It's all done. There is nothing left to be paid. He says, this is, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. That's what we remember when we come. We remember that every one of our sins is buried in the very depths of the sea, never to come up, never to be returned to you, Never to be the penalty of that sin is paid for completely.